Audio conversation with Alan Cavanis, recorded Sunday, October 30th, 2011. I first stumbled on Alan's website, a site titled CavanisReport.com, and Cavanis is his last name, spelled C-A-V-I-N-E-S-S. Uh, so the website is called uh, Um and, and I first stumbled on it when I googled owls and UFOs. And uh, a very interesting article came up. It was a report written by Alan, and it was very, very thoughtful. It was very well-researched, extremely odd, involving uh, someone who saw an owl on the side of the road. And then upon further investigation, there were several other odd events that took place that very same night within a few miles. One was a woman who saw a deer uh, that was running alongside of her car, very fast along the road, um, and the deer was looking at the driver in a way that was extremely odd. And another was a, uh, a UFO report, uh, just a simple light in the sky seen above someone's house. For some reason, the way this report was written and uh, the oddities that it pointed out and the synchronicities involved in how these people actually knew each other and the close location struck me as very odd. Um, I spoke to Alan on the phone a few days before doing the interview, and one of the things I found out is that he, in fact, was the guy who saw the owl on the side of the road. It's written in the third person, and when I spoke to him, I realized that it was actually him, and it it, uh, struck me as extremely interesting that he would... uh, he was having these experiences that happened a few other places in in his website also where he was writing in the third person and and after a little bit of questioning i realized it was him now these reports were written up a few years ago and he is now much more open with his own set of experiences so here we have a ufo investigator who is also a ufo experiencer and as i proceed forward on this path uh, i find that is much more normal than i ever would have guessed uh, just a few years ago so it was a very easy decision to contact Alan and, and request an interview. Um, and the interview was great. He's a very thoughtful guy, very heartfelt. And I get the sense that there are a bunch of workaday researchers, investigators, who are doing this all on their own and posting this stuff uh, online. This stuff just gets lost in the giant muddle of, of what is the Internet. And um, there's these people out there doing hard work, trying to document this stuff, trying to look into this stuff. And uh, Alan is one of those characters who is, uh, in my opinion, doing very good work and very open-minded and and working very hard to be honest and straightforward and clear in his reporting. In the show notes here, I'm going to link a bunch of his reports. And the interview goes for almost two hours, and and I was really happy with the content, and, and I'm super impressed with Alan. And there's one more thing that I find very curious, and that is both Alan and I share a bunch of similar life events. Uh, Similar in the sense that, uh, you know, it seems like we're both trying to research this subject, and both of us have had experiences that would fall into the UFO contact realm. Um, He's a little more forthright in in his own identity and what's happened, and I'm still very confused at at what may have taken place in my life. That said, uh, we do talk a great deal about how we both feel compelled to proceed forward with this research and how we both feel compelled to publish this stuff online. It is a mystery and we really get into it and it was wonderful to talk to such a big-hearted, thoughtful guy about these subjects. Um, The interview runs about two hours. Please enjoy. Alan, I just want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. 
Oh, you're most welcome. Good. And, you know, I don't even quite know how I found your site, but when I did find it, I was impressed at the uh, reports that you made. There was something very tidy and very thorough and very open-minded about the reports you were making. And, um, oh, you know how I think I found it now? I realized I had, obviously, I was searching out owl stories. And that was the first thing that I was taken to was uh, the story you reported, which was an owl um, on the side of a road, and it somehow wove its way into several other stories, which I thought was just fascinating. Yes. Uh, it might even be synchronicity when you think about it. Uh, quite possible. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's funny how uh, researchers tend to run into uh, situations like they do. Uh, a lot of times it, it could very well be synchronicity that causes uh, causes one to uh, go this way instead of that way and uh, bump into something they didn't expect or something they're looking for. Well, that was what I was trying to read between the lines there because you you tie together uh, two other stories that both take place in the same night and um and the other story is equally uh strange similar to this owl experience. Let's get back to that in a little bit and just um if you could just give a quick rundown so you're doing um uh UFO research or or paranormal research might be a better way to say it and then also um you seem to have your own set of life experiences and 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 I'll also say that those when I read about those you know they seem to parallel my own life experience a little bit and and I was very much intrigued because of that yes um I've often suspected that uh, there's a gradual coming together that's being orchestrated by whoever is out there in the paranormal world, uh, perhaps they're uh, trying to bring uh, a lot of people together, researchers, experiencers, uh, and so forth. And maybe it's all part of a general uh, awakening to what's out there that we've always uh, had our minds closed to over the years. And I think that the acceleration of this, which I, which I sense is very real, um, you know, could be paranormal and it could be based on just the, the, the access of information now with the internet and email and such um, or you know quite honestly it could be like a combination of both that's making it accelerate the way it's the way I sense it seems to be accelerating yeah given the current human condition and uh, so I can certainly see a, an acceleration of all things happening at this point including a, a, gra- a, a steady awakening to, to the paranormal world and I would like to point out that we were talking about synchronicities, and our previous call was 11 minutes and 11 seconds long. So whatever that, so there's the 11-11, which sometimes seems to show up in all of this. Yeah, I've, I've run across uh, quite a few people who have uh, claimed to have seen uh, uh, familiar numbers uh, all too often, you know, much more than uh, coincidence would allow for. And uh, I'm working on a case right now, a UFO-related case in California where... Uh, the guy is going nuts because everywhere he goes, he keeps seeing threes uh, to the point where it's really getting up under his skin a lot, and he feels like something is messing with him. And this is after having a few paranormal experiences uh, uh, around the same time frame as well. So uh, a lot of people are experiencing uh, little things like that that they don't know what to make of. And uh, and for some reason, the number one, two, three, or one, two, three, four, or, you know, when I really pay attention, when I get one, two, three, four, five, those numbers have been appearing for me in a way where, um, you know, I don't know quite what to make of these type of things. And the only thing I can say is when it happens is just to pay attention. I can't, I can't really go much beyond that because some of the little synchronicities seem to be just so subtle that, that, uh, uh, you know, I'm cautious to read too much into them. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, the, once you open your eyes to something, you, you tend to see it more often. And uh, it, some of it is just going to be sheer coincidence uh, because you're looking for it more without realizing it. But there are cases where even I have to admit, uh, boy, it looks like something really strange is going on. Hey, just to give a quick rundown of, of um, how you got involved in this sort of research and, uh, and you know, in what it's brought you to today, I guess. Well, in a nutshell, uh, I had had a couple of experiences earlier in life that I just didn't know what to make of. I, I wasn't sure uh, what to think, but I suspected it had something to do with uh, paranormal origins. But uh, like everyone else, I just continued on through my daily life and uh, didn't worry about it too much and put it in the back of my mind. Then in 1994, um, I was uh, doing some stargazing and uh, tracked a strange craft up in space through a telescope for a little over two minutes. And with my aviation and astronomy background, I realized this is not something that's supposed to be up there according to what we've built. This was not a conventional craft. It was in space. I was able to confirm that. And uh, later on, I filed a UFO report about it. And it wasn't until five years later, I uh, saw a video of the same type of object at low altitude over in Europe. Um, and this was a video of an object that had been seen just a few years before uh, I had seen my object in space. And there were close-up witness accounts telling me that these things were uh, these black triangles that are seen close to the ground at times. Um, there were many, many sightings over in Europe back in 1989, 1990, all the way to 1993. My sighting was in 94. I did not know at the time what these things were. I had not heard about them. And I wasn't involved in UFO research at that point. But in 1999, I started watching some TV documentaries and immediately saw a video of one of these things. And I realized, wow, that's, that's what I saw. And what I saw was in space. What these people saw was close to the ground. And these triangles were roughly the size of a football field, you know, roughly 300 feet across. And I had done some mathematical calculations based on my observation years earlier, and I knew that my object was somewhere between 120 feet and 800 feet across, and so the eyewitness accounts fit nicely into my calculations. And um, at that point, I realized, well, these things are real, and they are spacecraft. And so at least I've got the, the unique uh, opportunity to verify that these craft that are seen in, in the air close to the ground are capable of spaceflight, no question about it, because I've seen one in space. And uh, I was able to confirm that it was in space at the time. And have you ever tried to do like a recreation, like a, like an artist recreation of, of what you saw through the telescope? Well, uh, yes. As a matter of fact, that's in my website, uh, uh, Um There are some uh, illustrations in there that you can find in, in an article about that sighting, the telescope sighting. It's uh, under the UFO uh, sightings section. 
Good, good, and I, and I and I and I remember seeing that. I don't remember paying that close attention to that report. I was I was sort of uh, um, digging in deeper into some other reports. But I, I do I will say that your reports are. Well, I said it earlier where they're very tidy and they're you know they read really well. And I find that they're also really well documented with photographs, which which really helps me as a as someone reading them to have the you know both the verbal description as well as the um, illustrations. Well, that's true. I very seldom read a book that doesn't have pictures in it myself. So, I think uh, I think uh, it, it just provides some good mental balance uh, uh, towards your comprehension when you've got illustrations to go by, because that's a big part of our brain, and uh, you know we we need visuals uh, to use uh, along with text. And um, I was I tried to be very meticulous in all my articles in the website. I spent uh, tons and tons of hours trying to just make sure to get it right and fine-tune it and get it exactly what like I wanted it to be to where I would never need to go back and re-edit anything. Uh, the the truth is so crucial. It's such a critical factor in all this that um, it's such a slippery slope when you're researching these things. It's so easy to misperceive something. You just have to have, you have to add an extra element of uh, caution in everything you do to make sure that you get it right because I wanted my readers to be able to count 100% on what's in that website. I cannot vouch for other websites uh, with other researchers, but at least I can vouch for my own as being what I believe to be 100% reliable. And uh, without that reliability, we just can't advance forward. Uh, it's so easy to get things wrong in this business and that's one reason I tend to not draw conclusions very quickly about anything. I, I observe more than I conclude, and I think that helps keep me in, in the right general direction. Now, when reading through your reports, you don't seem to shy away from, from like people's impressions, like thoughts that they're having at the time, which I, which I think is really important. I know that some of these thoughts can come across as almost absurd in a way, and then some researchers would want to stick only to the nuts and bolts thing, but you, you seem to also be sharing impressions and thoughts and concerns and that, that show up in the witnesses in their retelling. Well, I, I wanted to make sure to convey to people what was going through my mind and how I rationalize all this, because I feel like there are many people out there that are doing the same thing. They have the same inner thoughts. They need to see it from someone else. And that way they don't feel um, so ostracized from society for having had these experiences. Uh, when, when a person has a, a paranormal experience, he or she has really nowhere to go unless they can find someone else that knows exactly you know, what, uh, what they're going through, or at least uh, generally what they go through, because uh, when you have an experience, you suddenly become alone because you're suddenly on the opposite side of the fence from everybody else psychologically, and, and we really deal with this whole phenomenon in a psychological way because we're psychological creatures, and uh, I, I, I've always felt that in regular everyday life, psychology is a major component of everything. Uh, that's We have to deal with people on a daily basis. We have to understand what makes them tick. And uh, for the human being, it's more about psychology than anything else. Uh, we, we tend to view this entire uh, UFO phenomenon and supernatural phenomenon through our psychology. We We have to somehow bring it through the human window so we can understand it. 
even though it's not a human issue to start with. So I try to uh, I try to let people know how I how I derived at everything that's in my website. I try to show how I'm thinking and what brought me to the conclusion so that people don't have to wonder and guess and perhaps debate the issues. I, I try to spell it out the best I can. And this is something that was really good advice that Leo Sprinkle, and I'm sure you're familiar with him. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. so I, I spoke with Leo, who lives uh, fairly close to where I do right now, and, and I asked him, uh, uh, you know, how do I separate my own self from what's being researched? You know, because to me, this is, it's an emotional topic, you know, like I'm I'm wrapped up in this, so, and I recognize that, and I know stepping into that role, um, you know, that's that's almost trouble. And, and he, you know, very quickly said, you know, oh, you can't. You simply can't um, separate yourself from the, from the subject. You'll never be fully objective. And he says you just need to know that going in and be aware of it. You know, that um, lack of objectivity is going to show up uh, sometimes in, you know, the way you do your research and, and quite possibly to the conclusions, too. That's true. Uh, I, I've always felt that people basically think in two different ways. They have emotion-based thoughts and they have intellect-based thoughts. Basically, right brain, left brain. And in this business, um, the paranormal world seems to appeal to our emotional uh, senses uh, more so than the intellect, because the intellect has a tough time figuring this stuff out. It's rather confounding. But uh, we, it seems like the paranormal world uh, knocks on our door uh, through the right side of our brain. And we, we feel impressions. Uh, sometimes impressions are conveyed to us and things like that, subtle, subtle features. But the way to, to understand this, in my opinion, is you have to just sort it out. And you've got to sort it out uh, emotionally, you've got to sort. Uh, you've got to lay all the impressions out to one side, and then you've got to analyze it with your intellect on the other side, and you've got to keep those things separated as much as you can. And um, there are times when you have to intellectualize uh, this whole thing. Uh, sometimes, say after an abduction, uh, you might be instructed subconsciously to not worry about it, forget about it, uh, that sort of thing. But your intellect is more immune to any kind of subconscious instructions. And it's just like with people. People can manipulate your emotional side, but they can't manipulate your intellect as easily. Neither can the aliens. And uh, if you really program yourself, you can do things against your will that you've been instructed not to do. Uh, for instance, uh, one time I found a scar on my body that definitely came from an abduction, no question about it. And I took several photographs of it with the camera that I had handy, and I did it against my will. I, I did it until I could not make myself shoot any more pictures, but I was able to get two good photographs out of 11. And uh, I did that simply because I had already programmed myself ahead of time to not uh, allow myself to be manipulated uh, through my feelings, and my own programming uh, fortunately dominated uh, the subconscious programming that I must have been taken through because I did not want to do anything about it once I saw it. and But I made myself, and now I've got a couple of really good photos of uh, actual physical evidence of a definite abduction. So uh, you have to intellectualize it. Uh, that's the best way to go through it. Plus, um, 
some of the things you run across will drive you nuts if you don't. <laughs> so you have to you have to really learn to polarize your right and left brain away from each other. It seems. I have a story where I was with a um, a friend of mine, and people who've read my blog or listened to these things, I've talked about it a few times, so I won't go too much into it here, but I was camping with a friend of mine. She also has a life history of odd paranormal experiences. We woke up in the middle of the night super terrified uh, in a a way that that goes beyond all rationale. Uh, Both of us felt it, and then both of us, poof, went right back to sleep. Um, I had an odd set of what feels like dreams that were more vivid than dreams. And then uh, um, I won't go into that right here, but but in the morning I woke up and I had a big scratch. It sort of went from my left shoulder almost to my belly button. Well, it looked like maybe a scratch from a single rose thorn or a, or a single cat claw, just this little teeny thin scratch. But when you looked closely at it, it was, um, it was actually made up of tiny little blisters, like itty-bitty dots that were kind of red and and uh, tiny raised blisters. I'd never seen anything like it. Um, now both myself and my friend, her name is Natasha, you know, we had cameras, we were in the desert, it was hot. At any point we could have taken a picture of this. It healed up very quickly and, um, you know, just within less than a week it was completely gone. It just washed off in the shower and then as soon as it was gone, both of us kind of did this like, <gasps> we should have taken a picture of it. And and it didn't even cross our mind, even though both of us, you know, she's working for a UFO research organization where she lived, and, and I'm, I've been doing this blog where I pretend to be, play the role of researcher, and it, it completely, totally slipped our minds. Right, and I, I've run into that myself uh, several times, and uh, give you an example, uh, in that particular abduction I just told you about um, in 2001, um, a couple of days later, uh, I found that the shirt that I had worn that day had a perfectly round hole right in the center of the chest, right where my uh, scar had been. And uh, there had definitely been some minor surgery done to me, and they went right through my shirt for some reason. I'd never heard of this before, but it was a perfectly round hole. It wasn't burned. The edges were not singed. The, uh, the width of the round hole was roughly about like a milkshake drinking straw. And, and about one centimeter, I'd say, a little bit wider. And uh, I immediately had a strong impulse to take the shirt and throw it away as quickly as I could. And I did, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I do remember that. And my mind was very muddled for about a week. I ne- Every time I tried to think about the event, I couldn't stay focused on it. My mind would drift to something else instead. And I, I kept having trouble. It took about a week before I could really focus on the event. And the whole day had been erased from my memory. I couldn't think uh, I couldn't think back and remember a single thing, a single moment of the entire day. And I had discovered this uh, uh, scar on my body around midnight that night. And obviously the event had occurred sometime in the mid-afternoon, uh, from what I can tell. Well, let's go ahead and give uh, talk about that event, because that was one of the things on my notes here that I wanted to, to hear you explain, because in your report, which I'll also link on the on the show notes, um, I thought that was a really interesting report. Yeah, um, a lot of the events that happen seem to always have a background story to them. Uh, I was driving a truck, and I had two deliveries to make uh, uh, down in South Carolina, about a four-and-a-half-hour drive from here. And uh, the first delivery was near Columbia, South Carolina that day, and I got down there in the early afternoon and um, and quickly made a delivery there, stayed a few minutes, and then left. 
and proceeded on from there to Sumter, South Carolina. And I made a delivery down there later in the afternoon. And then uh, basically all I had to do was come back home after that, and about a four-and-a-half-hour drive. And um, when I got back home that night, uh, nothing out of the ordinary seemed to, to have occurred as far as I could tell. But when I got home that night, uh, roughly around 10 o'clock or so, everything was just fine. And around midnight, I decided to go to bed, and I took my shirt off. I went into my bathroom and looked in the mirror, and uh, there was this uh, scoop mark. It's something I've seen uh, on other people who have claimed to have been taken into UFOs, and these were old scars I'd seen. They're, they're little depressions in the skin, and uh, I knew exactly what it was when I first saw it, but this had an incision in it, and I'd never seen something with an incision in it. I didn't understand how the process worked, but what had happened is somebody had cut a slit in the center of my chest, just clear of the sternum, and uh, reamed out a circular amount of tissue from just underneath the skin and then they closed it back up and and it created you know a little uh, cat a little uh, crater or a pit uh, a depression it's very obvious and of course the the slit was right there a very perfect uh, thin incision it looked like it'd been done with a laser I looked down at it and I, I saw it just inches away from my face and I thought, wow. And I knew what it was, but it didn't jolt me. I knew exactly what had happened and it did not jolt me. I was already conditioned to not react to it. And um, I looked in the mirror and I looked back down at my chest and saw it. And I, I didn't understand why the incision was there because I didn't understand how these scoop marks are created. Later on, uh, someone in the medical field explained to me from the picture, you know, how this works, and then, then it all made sense. But uh, I, was, I was impressed with the precision of the incision, and I remember commenting on that to myself. I didn't have any thought to call my best friend and say, hey, you've got to come over here and look at this. Finally, I've got some proof of what's going on. I never thought once about doing that. But my intellect did take over like I was I'll try to program, program it to do. And uh, I remember telling myself, wait a minute, I've got film in my 35-millimeter camera. I can take pictures of this. And so um, I, I immediately thought, well, I'll just go to bed. I'll worry about it in the morning. And then I got to thinking, no, that's my right brain talking. I'm going to take pictures. And I made myself go get my camera. I happened to have film in it. And I came back and took some pictures. I had to point the camera toward me and guess at the focus so I knew that as a photographer, that uh, a lot of the pictures might not come out right, so I'd better shoot a lot of them at various distances to make sure. And uh, I did that, and fortunately, out of 11 pictures, uh, two in the middle came out well enough to clearly show, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the item. Uh, so I was fortunate that I made myself shoot that long, but by the 11th picture, I just could not make myself shoot anymore. I just had no will to do it, so finally I put the camera down. And I went to bed and immediately fell asleep and didn't think twice. And the next morning I woke up and I checked and sure enough, it was still there, but it was half healed. And uh, later, later I went to work. I even made a mention that I'd had this thing on my chest that happened to me during the night and nobody acted like they wanted to see it. Uh, so I, I didn't think twice about it. I went on about my business. That afternoon when I came home around 5 p.m., uh, there was no sign that it had ever been there on my chest at all. So, so I, within 24 hours? Yes. Well, uh, 
I would say about 24 hours, roughly, because I think that it, it was done to me roughly in the afternoon before, about mid-afternoon. So I'd say about 24 hours. It was totally gone completely, and I didn't expect that. But uh, I did talk to someone in the medical field later about it, and they said, well, it, 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 didn't, it didn't heal faster than normal necessarily. They said that a scoop, well, what it is is a, like a punch biopsy. And they said that biopsies no larger than that can heal within 12 to 72 hours. And if it's done perfectly, uh, it won't leave anything. You won't even know it's ever happened. If it's done sloppily, you can leave a permanent scar, or permanent depression. But there are processes underneath the skin that go to work immediately when tissue has been removed. And, and it, it moves to, uh, you know, heal things back up. And it does it very quickly. So the healing process was not unnatural necessarily. Now, the, uh, the fellow told me that if it had been a larger um, uh, biopsy, it might have taken as much as two weeks to heal. So uh, it was about one centimeter across. And ironically, that's a human unit of measurement, isn't it? At one centimeter. It was exactly one centimeter across. I found that kind of strange. Um, why would it happen to be a human unit of measurement for the size of the item? So I didn't know what to think at that point. But a couple of days later, I found that my shirt that I had worn that day had a perfectly round hole right in the center of the chest exactly where this had occurred. So obviously from that, I'd, I'd been taken out of my truck at some point, and my guess is it would have been after the second delivery when I was done with my work for the day, and it would have been about mid-afternoon. Judging by the rate of healing, that makes it sound about right. And uh, I was taken from my truck. I did notice uh, in my logbook, uh, truck drivers keep logbooks, I noticed that I had written down uh, my odometer mileages, and it showed 100 extra miles. I don't know whether I had, you know, mistakenly put that down in error or I'd driven an extra hundred miles uh, than what the trip required. I uh, thought that was an oddity. Uh, but if, if they went through my clothes, the only reason I could think they would have done that is because they were in a hurry and they had plenty of other people to do at the same time. And it might not have even been done by a being. It might have been done by a machine process. Now, it's very interesting because I have enough first aid training to know that uh, any anyone attempting this in a perfectly human realm, let's say, uh, would would uh, remove the shirt or lift it up and get it out of the way. There's just the, the level of contamination potential just by trying to go through a shirt um, doesn't make sense in a, in a purely human realm unless there's some technology that, right. that, we're, that I have no idea about. But um, So uh, that seems very unusual to think of the hole in the shirt and then, you know, try to go down the, the uh, speculative process of, you know, who could have done it. Well, when it comes to abductions, uh, I've learned over the years that so many people are being abducted. There's no question in my mind, based on my experience, there's no question that ab abductions are occurring on a large scale. And if that's true, then the abduction processes are not taking place inside a few UFO craft. There's got to be facilities somewhere, underground, on the earth, under the oceans, on the moon, somewhere. But people are being abducted too often. There's too many people around the world being abducted for it to be a small operation. That would have to require facilities, large facilities somewhere. 
I can imagine rows of people on tables uh, having things done to them, not just a, two or three people inside a small spaceship. Um, that just doesn't account for the scale and magnitude of this abduction uh, operation that's going on. Um, <clears throat> I run into too many people too often. I'm certain, based on uh, my experience, that <clears throat> the number of abductees in the United States ranges in the tens of millions. And, and, I, and I have heard these claims, and, and I'm cautious to put a number on it, but what I do recognize is that you know, I, too, am meeting a lot of people who share stories, and whether they're directly abductions or, or I can infer some things into their stories. And I don't really like the term abduction because you know, it doesn't seem to fit all the cases. Um, you know, people who have strange paranormal experiences that might fall into this category um I, i'm shocked at the number i've meeting of uh, number of people i'm meeting and connecting with i also get the very very strong impression that whatever's going on it is happening to a lot of people though i'm cautious to put a number on it yeah me too uh i feel the same way about that uh i you know it's possible that we live totally separate lives in the subconscious realm at, while we're living in the conscious realm, and it could be that we may be accomplishing more on Earth in our lifetime subconsciously than we are in the conscious realm. Uh, we're only aware of the conscious realm ourselves, but someone else could be dealing with this on the subconscious level. And who's to say that uh, certain people uh, haven't made uh, agreements to be taken? Uh, maybe there are things going on beyond our comprehension. And maybe there are reasons, hidden reasons for all this to be happening. It may not be just straight out abductions. We just don't know. Or in some cases it could be. In other cases it may not be. There are a lot of people who are just simply contactees. And uh, they, they feel like uh, uh, they're, you know, they may be getting taken from time to time, but they don't look at it as being abducted necessarily. Yes, I agree. I agree. That story with the uh, the biopsy punch in the chest is fascinating. And one of the things I want to ask is, and, and I know we've talked about this in a brief conversation earlier, but it, this would I think would help folks to understand a little better. Um, you uh, wrote that post in the third person. So I read that post before ever contacting you. I read it in the third person, and it was only um, yesterday that I realized that it was actually a, a first-person experience that you were writing about. Um, and why did you change it, and why are you more comfortable now talking about it in the first person? Well, I've survived 12 years of investigations. The first few years, I was a little paranoid because I just I wasn't sure what the government's uh, involvement in all this might be, and I'd heard plenty of stories, and uh, so I wanted to be on the safe side. And in this particular case, uh, between Columbia, South Carolina, and Sumter, there are two major military bases. There's even a, a National Guard base in between them along this one stretch of highway where I think that my abduction occurred. And you've got Fort uh, Jackson, uh, uh, which is a major army base in Columbia, South Carolina, and you've got Shaw Air Force Base in Sumter, South Carolina. And I had talked to a friend of mine uh, that I grew up with who used to be stationed at Shaw Air Force Base uh, back in the 70s. And they, uh, he and his wife, who I also knew, uh, had a married couple that would visit them ever so often, and, and they would drive back to Columbia, South Carolina after their visit. And on one occasion, they had a red light following them almost the entire way down that highway. So to me, that's a UFO alley. And 
I got to thinking with the military presence down through there, why did this have to happen along that stretch? And I couldn't help but suspect that there could be military involvement in this. I don't believe that it was strictly military involvement necessarily, uh, but I can't rule it out completely. Um, whatever happened, was, I think, was done in assembly line fashion. I don't know how they got me out of my truck while I was driving it, but somehow they did. <clears throat> Somebody did. And because of the military presence in that particular area, um, I was just I was just very suspicious for a long time that it might be a, a military operation that did this. Um, I've never had I, I'm certain that I've been abducted before over the years, but they never left a mark on me for me to see. This time somebody did. Was it the same people or beings that had, have abducted me before, or was it somebody different? I had only uh, become known for my experiences and investigations about a year and a half earlier. So there were people out there in organizations that suddenly knew who I was, and I was a little suspicious that maybe the government was finding out who I was, too. Um, with all these things going on, you wonder, why is all this happening now? And, and, and why did this particular event happen that particular day where it did? Why couldn't it have been somewhere else? I would travel every day somewhere different. Why did it happen right in an area that has a concentration of military? So I had plenty of reasons to at least be suspicious. So when I did put the website together uh, and publicize that story, I didn't want to give anybody uh, anything more than what they needed. I wanted to get the story out there, but anybody uh, in the government, perhaps, that might have an interest, I didn't want to give them any more than I could help. So I wanted to be on the safe side. Now, after 12 years, I don't seem to have been bothered by anybody, so I feel more comfortable about things. Although I still keep my guard up all the time. There are things I don't talk about openly. And I'm sure other researchers are the same way. I agree. And there's a few stories that I have that, that um, involve other people that I'm cautious to keep uh, just quiet. I'll share them privately sometimes. But um, Well, you know, when, you, uh, when you investigate uh, UFO-related matters, you're not going to go very long without running across the military somewhere. They're going to be a component. They're going to be a factor in your investigations. You can't separate the UFO phenomenon from the military. They're in there. They're well embedded. And and on, this is something I've spoken with Melinda Leslie at that great length on, on numerous occasions. I have an interview with her, and she's looked into the MyLab incidents, uh, military yes. abduction incidents, and, and even separating those which which are very mysterious. I, I, I don't have a. I, I'm not sure quite what to think of of you know what's really going on in the in the big picture. Um, but I I will say one of the things that's very common is for someone to say like oh I saw a uh, you know an odd shaped UFO streaking across the sky and then moments later it was followed by you know air force jets or, or military helicopters. Exactly. And if you uh, look further into my website, there's an article uh, uh, talking about the military involvement in uh, UFOs down in Puerto Rico. And uh, I personally remember while being in the Navy, we lost two F-14s one day uh, off uh, the end of Puerto Rico where we have a naval air station. And uh, I never could get any follow-up information as to what happened to those airplanes. Uh, a friend of mine had come back up from there a few 
few days later and it told me that, that a certain squadron had lost two airplanes down there and I was in aviation maintenance so it was of concern to me because uh, we lose airplanes sometimes due to maintenance problems and uh, from a maintenance standpoint you you want to know what happened uh, in case it might happen to another aircraft later on. Uh, it could be uh, you know a faulty uh, relay or something that's a design flaw that sort of thing but I could never get any detailed information out of my friend and I thought that was odd. A few years ago, I read in a book uh, about the fact that there was a UFO incident where two F-14s were confiscated by a large UFO down there in that area. And it was seen by ground witnesses. And I looked at the date of when it happened, and that coincided with what uh, I had remembered from years back happening uh, on that occasion. And it turned out that a large craft had been seen uh, heading uh, toward the... Uh, the air station down there on one occasion and uh, this was back in 1988 going into 89 and uh, they dispatched a couple of F-14s uh, after it to try to intercept it to get it to turn away because they didn't know what its intentions were and uh, the two F-14s ended up getting confiscated somehow by the UFO as they were flying over or under the things they didn't come back out and this was in November of 88 I believe and in December of 88, uh, when the two, two F-14s uh, were lost that I heard about, uh, the same kind of thing happened with a, a different large UFO approaching the base. Uh, they sent three F-14s uh, to intercept it and try to get it to uh, change course. And they got in front of it and circled around it and so forth. And um, <clears throat> uh, one of the, the F-14s flew either under it or over it. It was hard to tell from the ground but it didn't come back out. And a second one did the same thing a, a minute later. The third one fired up his afterburner and got the heck out of there and uh, headed out to see as fast as he could go. Boy, I sure would like and, to talk to that pilot. And Well, uh, uh, George Filer, uh, a UFO investigator from many years ago, he, he spent 20 years in Air Force Intelligence. He's a good friend of mine. He interviewed some of the pilots uh, later on about that incident. He said they were very upset about what had happened. And uh, I, I remember uh, there was an investigation. Um, there were some important people down there that saw the actual events happening. And uh, these, this is four $30 million aircraft and eight military people gone. And the, uh, the public put a lot of pressure on the government to complain on what had happened because they kept acting like nothing had happened. Eventually, uh, they were forced to have a press conference and one of the assistant secretaries of, of defense or secretaries of the Navy had a press conference and told uh, everybody officially that the military did not lose any aircraft that particular week at all. And I know that's a lie. There's no question that's a lie. And uh, two airplanes out of one squadron, that's a big deal. And because uh, most aircraft squadrons only have maybe a dozen aircraft and, and uh, you know, a couple of hundred people. And, you know, when something like that happens, it's a big event. And they uh, downplayed it and, and publicly said that nothing had happened that whole week. And, and I know for a fact that's a lie. And I have a lot of details to the story in the website. I think that's one of the more interesting articles uh, for most people to read. Uh, but it, it really makes you suspicious about the government involvement. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, not the government in general. It's just certain factions inside government. 
Uh, only certain people know about this stuff. But when you hear about all these UFO sightings and jets flying right past them uh, right afterward, uh, you, you got to realize there must be many pilots that have chased these things. They're just not talking. Very much so. Very much so. That's, this is really interesting. Hey, um, share the story that's posted. It's called the Owl and Deer Incidents that took place in 2002. I thought that was really interesting, and that's, that's what initially brought me to your site. Yeah, that has a story behind the story, too. Uh, one day, uh, I rounded the corner coming home and uh, in my car, and I came over a couple of hills. And as I crested one hill, and it had just gotten dark. It was November, early evening, and as dark as it could be. And I crested this hill in my car, and there was this full-grown owl just standing there on the road staring at me, about a, about 18 inches uh, on the road. Oh, here, just let, let me, let me, so this is daylight or nighttime? It's early evening at nighttime. I mean, it was dark, but it was like 6.30 in the evening, 7.30, something like Great. that. And uh, it was early evening, but it was good and dark. And I crested this hill, and my headlight suddenly showed this owl just standing there looking at me like he was waiting on me. And I slowed down, and he didn't flinch at all. And as I got closer, <clears throat> I had to literally swerve to the left to miss him. He still didn't flinch as I went past him, and I only missed him by a couple of feet. And I went on down about 100 more feet and stopped at the bottom of the hill and looked back, and I saw him sort of lean like a penguin and, and pivot and make a, a turn facing the woods. And then he stopped. It's like he was totally unfazed by me just having gone by. And and uh, I, I had a passenger with me, a, a young girl about uh, probably 16 years old at the time. I looked at her, and I looked back at it, and I thought, no, I better get out of here because I don't know what that really was because I had heard stories where uh, alien beings have appeared to people as owls or deer or something that you would consider harmless. And this has happened too often, and it looked very real to me, but I thought I, I had better not walk over to it and see what it was because I was literally wanting to do that to see what would happen. But with a passenger, I decided, no, I'd better not. So we went up to the corner, and I parked, and we went into the apartment. Later, I came back out, and it wasn't there. Strangely, uh, a couple of days later, at the same time of night, I went back through there, and I got to thinking, how did I see that animal uh, when I looked back? There's no streetlights around here. And I couldn't understand why my memory recalled looking back at it and it making a quarter of a turn like it did and then just standing there. Now, would there have been enough light from, from let's say, a brake light? Or could you have put the car into reverse and just put a little bit of uh, the reverse lights that come on off the taillight of a car? I tried that very thing. I reenacted everything a couple of nights later. And no, I could not conclude that the brake lights would have lit lit up the uh, the uh, owl enough for me to see it. I remember mentally recalling it very clearly, but I can't match memory to reality. It doesn't seem to work. I don't know whether that's a false memory I've got or not, but uh, I documented it, wrote it down, and wrote all the details I could and went on. A few days later, a good friend of mine who I grew up with, who has had a couple of UFO experiences himself over the years, um, he told me that a good friend of his that works at the local hospital was coming home one night recently, and she finally saw her first UFO. She'd always wanted to see one and saw one when she was turning in her driveway. And this was about probably three or four miles from me. Uh, and I asked him, when, what night was this? And he told me the date. 
and I said, would you come in here for a moment? I took him into my other room in my apartment, and I said, look at this calendar. And I already had written down uh, on the same exact day the owl incident. And it was the same night that a UFO was seen by someone three and a half, four miles away from here. And um, about two weeks later, the same fellow went with me to investigate um, another UFO case that had occurred locally here years ago. And I just I'd gotten a chance to talk to the woman about it. And uh, while we were talking about the UFO incident to where she used to live a few miles from from here uh, locally in my apartment, um, I uh, got to talking to her and told her that I had had a strange animal incident recently. And before I could explain to her, she started telling me about a strange deer incident she had had recently. And she proceeded to tell me uh, that one night she was coming home uh, from work. She works the second shift at the local hospital, as it turns out. And she was coming home that uh, on a certain night. And before she got home, she was going through some open highway roads uh, close to where she lives in a rural area. And suddenly there was this eight-point buck deer that was running alongside her on the opposite shoulder uh, off from her driver's side and just staring at her the whole time while running. Now, this is a 50 and 55-mile-an-hour road that she was on. And she, I asked her how long this thing paced her, even with her car door, and she said uh, close to a mile. And she said she would slow down, it would slow down. She would speed up, it would speed up. But it would stay right there, even with her, which is not normal behavior for a deer, obviously. And she finally came to a complete halt, and so did the deer. And then the deer just stared at her for a few more seconds, then turned and galloped across the ditch into the woods. She went on home. I looked looked at my friend, and he looked at me, and the lady told us the exact night that this had occurred and it was the same night of the owl incident and the ufo incident and where it where it occurred with her was about three miles on the other side of where the ufo incident had happened you could draw a straight line from me to the ufo sighting to the deer sighting all happened uh, the same night now my incident happened about 6 30 that night the other two incidents happened close together uh because both people were heading home from the same place of work at the same time. Ironically, they did not know each other, but the lady who saw the UFO uh, knew my friend, and I knew the other lady myself. So we all tended to know one another through each other, but it was just just ironic that uh, both women were coming from the same place. There was a lot of oddities about this whole matter. Okay, so this is, to me, very interesting. And the reason I say it's interesting is because, you know, here's, here's a case that uh, just the, the interconnectedness of the, of the prime witnesses, like there's no profound event. Like no, you know, there's, there's a, I guess there is someone who sighted a UFO above their house, but that sounded to me just like a, a, a light in the sky, correct? Yes, it was rather subtle, uh, not so dramatic sighting. It was uh, something that appeared to be small to the observer, uh, some kind of a light that tended to dance around erratically somewhere back behind her house, uh, some distance away, uh, just above the tree line. And that's all the information I really got uh, 
from my friend about that, and and it was a short-lived sighting, you know, a matter of a few moments. Uh, nothing, nothing unusually dramatic. It wasn't like a large saucer right over the rooftop or anything like that. So. Yes. Yeah, so, so this is so you have a, a series of things that could be easily dismissed, and then right. you know, and then the fact that you put these puzzle pieces together, almost, um, you know, once again synchronistically, you know, through just someone mentioning something, um, the timing of events. Yeah. Now, the the yeah. young girl that was in the car. This was now um, nine years ago. She would be an adult now. Has has right. did she claim any odd experiences in her life? Do you know? Uh, she has zero odd experiences, and I, I was very close to her, and uh, uh, I still keep in touch with her at this time. But uh, she had uh, no odd experiences whatsoever. Good. So that's that's interesting. Uh, my own set of experiences seem to intersect with owls, and and I've said this before, and I'll repeat it again. I think they're all real owls. I don't sense anything that would that would be a uh, a screen memory. I also live in a place with a lot of owls. Uh, but the, the the paranormal and almost the mythic quality of the owl um, is is interesting. On one level, for the screen memory, an owl is something that that when you, you know if you were to just uh, pick an animal that that closely matches what would be the gray alien, you know there are owls that are actually called gray owls. You know they have big eyes and and uh, so that would be a the screen memory. So the the thought that there could be an illusion projected into the mind of the person, the the potential abductee, that this owl is performing some some role simply to mask what would be a, an actual alien presence is something you know you hear about. But uh, I also don't, you know, I also like to think about the fact that the owl, you know, in all kinds of cultures uh, stands for, you know, the gateway to another realm. You know, they, they live in the nighttime realm. They can see through the night and and that uh, that mythic quality of the owls, you know, shows up back in Greek and as well as Egyptian mythology and, and even to today. Yes, uh, that's true. And owls have a mysterious quality about themselves and their behavior. And uh, but aside from that, when I saw this owl, the, the main thing I locked in on immediately was his black glossy eyes. It, it was like it wasn't staring at my car; it was staring at me. That's the impression I got. It was as I came across the hill, and I just uh, and, and it didn't act normal. It, um, I could have hit it, and it wouldn't have flinched. And I grew up in that this area. Uh, where this happened, I grew up just three miles away. I lived in the woods when I was a little kid, uh, pretty much, and I, I never saw any large owls around the area at all. They always stay well into the uh, woodlands, you know, far away from the cities and all. And uh, it was just odd to even see uh, such an owl here, and it just did not act normal, not even for an owl. And I can't help but wonder if maybe that was a real owl, but it was programmed. Uh, something was uh, basically controlling its uh, behavior. This is something that's interesting that you say that because I wrote some owl essays on my blog, and one of the people who commented was Whitley Strieber, and he pointed out that owls, um, and he's he has a funny sort of poetic way of of chiming in on these things, and he'll just drop these bombs. Uh, it, it, but he basically said, you know, the owls might be used by the visitors, and they 
have these wonderful eyes that can see in the dark and these owls can be used like uh, little video cameras where somehow the visitors can tap into these these owls and use their eyes for their own needs where they can use them simply as a as a mobile video camera um, i don't know whether that's true or not that's that's an interesting line of speculation but that is interesting that you also said that the owl could be programmed and and i've heard that from uh, what amounts to a very famous abductee and that could explain why we now perceive the owl as a mythical creature. You know, the Native Americans had their uh, perceptions of the owl, all the other ancient cultures, and it could very well be that owls have been used and programmed for that, and that the owl itself is just an ordinary animal, but it just happens to have certain traits that uh, the, be- the paranormal beings can use. Yes, for instance, very, very good sense of hearing and a very, very strong ability to see in very low light conditions. Yeah, interesting. That's, One of the things that happened to me is in in a uh, I was at a UFO conference and I sat in on the abduction support group meeting. In, and you can visualize this; it looks exactly like what you would perceive a like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to look like. You know, there's just a bunch <laughs> yeah. of people sitting in a circle yeah. and they're telling, talking about their experiences. And this one guy had been silent the whole time. And uh, he raises his hand and sort of cautiously asks the people in the in the room, um, "Hey, has uh, anyone here had any experiences with owls?" Uh, to that, every single person in the room raised their hand. And, and <laughs> I his can was, understand that. Yeah. And his, anyway, he looked like he was about to jump out of his chair when 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 you know he, he visibly like you know, like whoa. And then he had a story that sounded very similar to yours. He was driving at night. He saw an owl on the side of the road. Uh, he thought it was very odd. He rolled his window down and drove past it. And he said the owl was about four and a half feet tall, which is too tall for an owl. And then he later exactly. um, was taking a photograph of an owl. A real owl. You know, he went to a spot where there was an owl nest, and he was a, a wildlife photographer. And you know, looking at the real owl, he said, "That thing I saw that night on the dark road—that was not an owl." And um, and it and it set him off on his own sort of journey to to investigate himself. Well, a lot of times hypnosis will will unmask the owl to be an actual gray alien or something else. Uh, in some cases, and I'd read about that before, and I had been looking for owl or deer that might act strangely for a couple of years uh, when finally this incident occurred with me. And I think it occurred because uh, whoever it was behind it knew I was looking for this kind of thing, and they provided me with this kind of event. Um, But uh, actually, the story goes a little further uh, in this case. Uh, I had a friend who was a professional psychiatrist, and I told him about these incidents as they were happening uh, during that time frame. And uh, uh, a short time later, he told me that he had a a lady to come in and wanted to talk to him and had had a a recent experience she couldn't understand. She had been driving down the road here in in my hometown, going down a road, and um, she kept seeing this big owl on a tree limb. Well, his first thought was, well, how could you keep seeing this owl on a tree limb if you're going down the road? And that she couldn't explain, but she remembered seeing this owl on a tree limb. And he asked, well, how big was this owl? And uh, I had already been talking to him about these things, so he was, he was curious. And she said, oh, about half the size of a human being. And, you know, owls do not get that large. They get to be about 18 to 20 inches tall. That's about it for an average barn owl. And that's the most common type owl around. That's what I'd seen. And uh, she was talking like it was like waist high to a human being. So obviously something was going on with her uh, 
uh, mentally, uh, she was uh, seeing, she was remembering something that couldn't have been real. So what really did happen? But it involved an owl, and that struck the psychiatrist as being fascinating. He also talked to another lady who came in around that time period again, synchronicity. And she came in and told him that uh, um, she had been having this owl uh, seem, that seems to follow her around everywhere she goes. Every time she looks around, there's this owl kind of staring at her from some distance. She's not scared of it. It's just she doesn't understand why it keeps on following her around. And her mom had told her she needed to go see a psychiatrist to see if there's anything mental going on that might have caused this experience. But my psychiatrist, I'd already told him, look out for owls and deer when it comes to alien abductees. <laughs> and uh, he, just, he just let them say their piece. He didn't offer them any explanation, but uh, they seemed to be okay otherwise, uh, mentally. Uh, but they were just bothered by the fact that it happened. They couldn't rationalize what had happened. They were worried that maybe they're starting to crack up. And um, he assured them that they seemed to be normal in every other respect. So I, I just noticed the time uh, right now. It said one, two, colon, three, four. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's contagious. So. Yeah, I remember reading where you had, had that experience uh, all too often, one, two, three, four. That's strange. I, I wasn't even paying any attention. Suddenly I keyed in on that, uh, on the timer for our uh, calling. But um, uh, all this happened uh, to the psychiatrist during the same general time frame that this other stuff was happening with me. So the timing is very suspicious. It's like somebody is orchestrating all this for some purpose. Don't know what it is, but it, it just doesn't seem to be coincidental for any reason. So you see a lot of dots that need to be connected, but you just aren't sure how to connect them. So, so here's the question. It's the, the woman who saw the deer running alongside her on the side of the road um, that was, you know, looking at her at the same time it was running parallel to the car, which is not in any way how a deer would run. Um, right. Did she report anything odd in her life or anything odd that night? Did you ask about missing time or anything? Well, I didn't have to. I had, I had known her from previous uh, months because she had had some UFO-related experiences happen to her over the years and paranormal-related experiences. She happens to be Native American. Uh, she comes from a North Carolina tribe uh, in eastern North Carolina, and she's been living here in, in my home area in central North Carolina for quite some time. And uh, I had known her two sons from work. And I got a chance eventually to interview her one day, and she had a fascinating uh, UFO story uh, that had happened uh, back in the early 80s, only about three miles, uh, or gosh, two or three miles from where I grew up at and, and not much farther than where I live right now. And uh, she had uh, reported waking up one night and extremely thirsty, probably 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning, and she went to the kitchen to get a drink of water. And as she did, she looked out the window and saw a big ring of lights up in the sky. And she realized there was a large round craft parked over, up above her house uh, a few hundred feet away, taking up almost the whole sky. And it had sequencing colored lights going around it. And there were sparks and streamers coming out of it for some strange reason. And she was fascinated by what she saw. She had this compulsion to go across the room to the other side of the house, to the windows, and she peeked from behind a curtain 
and looked outside to see if anything was going on on the other side of her lot. And the uh, that side of the house had a lot with weeds that were about waist high almost. And she looked and saw what she said was between 15 and 20 non-human beings walking across her lot right there in those weeds. And she said they were all about four and a half to five feet tall. They weren't very tall. And some of them were twiddling their fingers, their long fingers, across the tops of the weeds, like they were fascinated by the weeds. And she couldn't believe what she was seeing, naturally. And then suddenly, the one that was closest to her walking by, probably 20, 25 feet away, suddenly stopped and looked straight at her. And she made contact with his eyes, and she just sunk to the floor. She had two little children who were now grown that were asleep in the other room, and they were infants at the time, and she was very worried about them. And she, uh, it took her about a half minute or a minute to gather her wits, and she slowly raised back up and peeked out through the curtains, and nothing was there. And off to the left, off in the distance, there's, I think, a radio tower, if I'm not mistaken. She saw this giant blue arc flash up from the radio tower for some reason. She doesn't understand what that was about. And then nothing else happened that night. She's had a history of strange things happening to her over the years. Hooded figures in the night, you know, uh, things uh, staring at her uh, over her bed, uh, shadows, things of that nature. So she certainly had a, a rich history of paranormal experiences over the years. But it certainly involves UFOs. This is so interesting. I, and, I, and there was one researcher, and I cannot remember who it was um, offhand, and maybe one of the listeners will remember this, where, where <clears> he said, um, kind of a little bit in jest, but he said, you know, you want to find a UFO contactee? Talk to a Native American. Um, oh, basically, yes, the implication yes, is that, that, you know, the numbers are statistically off the charts as far as uh, Native Americans having interactions with the UFO phenomena. I think so, too. I think they've always been more down-to-earth uh, uh, and they have been more in tune with, the, with reality than Western civilization has. Uh, in, in Western civilization, we like to create our own form of reality and live well within that. And the Native Americans lived with nature and with open reality. They had no problems with that. And I think they were more um, um, open to uh, the paranormal realm as a result. Uh, you know, up in West Virginia, the Mothman uh, story, uh, all that was Native American country uh, uh, up until just a, couple, just a couple of hundred years ago. And I think the Mothman creature is probably something that goes way, way back over the centuries. Yes, and in the, in the, the paranormal aspect of, of that is, um, you know, is its own bottomless pit, you know, that has a different flavor to the UFO phenomena, which, which has this... Uh, very staged quality sometimes, you know, like they're or, or orchestrated. Maybe that's a better term for it. That's true. And uh, during the highlight of the Mothman story back in 1966 and 67, uh, during the entire year or so that uh, people were reporting seeing this strange creature, they were also reporting at the same time uh, quite a number of UFO uh, sightings, in some cases landings, uh, right in that general area too. As well as, like, a, you know, there was a fellow in the area, I think his name was Woody Derenberger, um, who reported, um, you know, like a, a contact experience, you know, straight out of George Adamski. You know? Yes. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, the, the, and and when you go there, I've I've explored the the uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia area quite a bit, and I've been a guest speaker out there the last couple of years during their festivals they have, and uh, I've talked to people who come forward. You know, there's a lot of people up there that have had paranormal experiences, uh, and, and I hear reports of the Mothman still being sighted every once in a while. This this creature that was nicknamed the Mothman, and uh, so it's not really a closed story. It's it's still ongoing. But uh, I believe the Mothman uh, creature, whatever it is, as well as things like uh, Bigfoot and Chupacabra, these these uh, mysterious creatures that can't seem to be tracked, I think the only explanation as to why they can't be tracked is because they either come from above or from down below, and they don't stay on the surface long when they're sighted. Interesting. Fascinating. Um, your site is a, as a curious combination of reports and then your own personal experiences. You wrote an essay, and it's about 30 pages long, um, you know, what would be a magazine article length, about uh, the abduction phenomena. At the end, you share some of your own stories. And, um, you know, this is as tidy an introduction to the uh, abduction phenomena as I've ever read. A lot of bulleted points. It's very clear. You're very uh, well organized in the way you present it. And what was the process of writing that essay, and what was the purpose of it? It seems to be there's a lot of those sort of essays around that show up in, in almost every uh, abduction book. Well, I think uh, part of it is I think you just want to get this out there. Uh, you, it, it's, um, it's hard to carry these uh, notions and this knowledge around without sharing it. You just have to share it with someone. And I think part of that is uh, the reason, I think that's part of the reason as to why uh, I wrote such an article. But another reason is I want to put that out there because I want to find out if other people uh, also concur with what I'm saying. And maybe they'll get in touch with me and tell me what they know. And maybe uh, together we can add to the picture and get a more clear understanding. And then... Uh, also, I just want to educate people as well. Uh, this is what's happening to me. What's happening to you? You know, uh, that's what I want to know. And uh, and and I think uh, I think the way I wrote it, I was I was very concerned about getting it right. I wanted to make sure I didn't say anything in there that wasn't correct, as far as I could tell. And I had a real strong compulsion to be as exact and as accurate with my feelings and impressions as I could, uh, probably because it's so easy to get things wrong in this business. It's a very slippery slope. If you don't use a really strong measure of carefulness, uh, it's easy to go off on, uh, away from the truth. And the truth is the most critical component of all this. If you can't cling tightly to the truth, you're spinning your wheels, and it, it, this takes a lot of work, all the research and, and going through the experiences. I want them to count for something other than uh, you know, just uh, creating a question in my mind about everything. I, I feel like if the more I share this, uh, the more other people might share their experiences with me and others, and together we might can figure this thing out. Um, and I, I think that I'm part of a large network of people all around the world that are being guided to do this, to investigate and get gather information and then share it with everybody. 
uh, I have not had to work very hard to get the amount of information and knowledge I've gotten over the past 12 years. It's, it has primarily knocked on my door. I haven't had to go seek it out. And uh, I feel like something is having me to do this, and as long as I go along with it, they will provide me with what I need to carry out this mission, if you will. And I feel like something has me on a mission to do this, and, and if I'm doing this, chances are there's perhaps 10,000 other people around the world doing the same thing, uh, like what you're doing. Uh, I have been handed experiences and knowledge uh, ever since I started digging into this, and it's come too easy in some cases. I can't help but think that uh, something wants me to do this. They want me to gather the information, and then they want me to share it with the rest of the world, perhaps for a gradual gradual awakening uh, worldwide. Perhaps they, they want to land on the White House lawn, but they know better. Because <laughs> you can imagine our reaction. Somehow or other, we would find a way to go to war with them or exploit them in some way. They they know us better than we know them. That's for sure. That is quite. I agree with that. Now, the 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 uh, just what you just said there, uh, as far as um, wanting to, uh, you put this out as a way to you know how how it would resonate with other folks, and that's I guess in essence what I was saying when I brought it up is because it resonated very strongly with me. And I'll just go a couple things down the list here that that we share um you know one of the things that i'm dealing with which i do not understand and it is very real it is very palpable is i have a sense of mission i have a sense that there is some duty that i'm supposed to perform but i have no idea what it is um that's and then exactly I exactly what I've, I've always felt and this is something that has only emerged recently or or has become more oppressive recently and that um you know, and then the act of creating this blog, which I started in the uh, spring of 2009, so it's just a little over two years now, um, the act of creating the, the online site was done in a sort of compulsive flurry. And, and I, you know, who knows, you know, what this actually means, but I am not exaggerating when it felt like it was, like I was being compelled by an outside force to, to create this blog. Now, I may have very well been compelled by, like, my own higher self or my subconscious or, or something, but it felt like it was something separate from my, from my normal day-to-day -day waking self. Right. Uh, I've I've always felt a cosmic sense of consciousness uh, ever since I was a little kid, and I never knew anyone else that felt that way. I always thought I was odd because I felt that way. I've always been interested in the stars, uh, always been fascinated by astronomy, space travel, uh, th the big picture of everything, the grand scheme of everything, and uh, the world in general. And most people I've ever known were more localized in their thinking, and I could never understand why that was the case. But now, as an abductee and, and learning what we've learned about other abductees and contactees, uh, this is rather common among people who uh, are involved in the paranormal world in some fashion. They have a cosmic sense of consciousness and a sense of mission. And in most cases, they say, I don't know what my mission is, but I got this strong feeling that I have one. And they're, they're constantly groping and searching, trying to find out what that mission is. But uh, when you talk about compulsions, that's a key word I've found in all this business. Uh, I think everything is being orchestrated, uh, 
and people call that synchronicity. I think it's being orchestrated by somebody somewhere and uh, made to look like it's all a bunch of natural coincidences, but it's certainly not. And I think in many cases of synchronicity, it starts out with someone having a compulsion to do something. And I had a strong compulsion to put this website together for a long time and eventually did. You had a compulsion to put your blog site together. And if you look at most uh, most paranormal situations, you can probably find somewhere where there was a compulsion that started it all off. Uh, perhaps a compulsion to go check out a place that's supposed to be haunted. And the very particular time you go there, sure enough, you experience a haunting. Whereas any other night of the week, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, something compelled you to go and do it at the right time. Or to meet a certain person that had something important to tell you that you didn't see coming. Uh, and you can't help but wonder, uh, like you and the lady that, was, that were in the tent together, uh, isn't it kind of strange that you were where you were at that moment in your life with someone else who had such an incredible paranormal history? And then you both have something to happen. Now, now that story, I don't know if you've read it on my blog or not, or the, the, the way that story starts out is we were driving through the desert in the southwest down by the Four Corners area. We were planning, like our vacation was done, we were planning to head back to my hometown here in Idaho. And um, so we were done. We are like, okay, let's fill up the tank you know, with gas and, and, uh, and let's start driving. So we were down mm -hmm. near Mesa Verde National Park. And, um, and then to get back to the town of Cortez, Colorado, the closest town, you have to go down this hill. And as we were going down this hill, um, I realized my brakes were acting extremely strangely. Uh, they weren't responding the way I wanted them to. And so the first thing I did when I got to the little town is found a, a mechanic. Uh, he looked at the car and, and uh, came out from the back and in no uncertain terms, like, looked at us and said in a very serious tone, he said, I cannot legally allow you to drive this car away. If you leave with this car, you'll die. And he, and he was purposely dramatic because he realized he had to keep the car overnight because the brakes simply weren't functioning anymore. Um, wow. So actually, it ended up being for five days he had to keep the car. And it happened that night. So we, you know, were on our way out of town basically and were forced to stay in this town and then we just found a little campsite out of town we found a very inexpensive rental car and then just camped out of town and uh, so I thought that part of the story cannot be subtracted from the overall uh, story which is uh, right which may you know had it have been I mean I don't really have anything to show for a nuts and bolts investigator in this story um, though for my own personal set of experience it it's very it resonates very strongly with me and you know, it all started out uh, making the trip uh, that particular occasion because you had a compulsion to make that trip, and 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 the compulsion to choose that particular day to start that trip, and uh, so there's always compulsion somewhere involved in the story, and then you had a lot of events that had to happen just right for everything to put you and your companion in that tent at that particular moment that night. <laughs> in that look, very much so. This is something yeah. that that um that that I would love you to comment on, but from my experience and then talking to others who are very quick to agree when I bring this up, the events are taking place in a deeply personal level. I feel like if my set of remembered experiences came any faster or if all these things happened all at once, 
um, it would have pushed me over the edge and I, I need to be hospitalized or institutionalized or something. I, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I would have snapped. Um, but what has happened instead is that these events in my life have come in a sequence that seem orchestrated in a way that allows me to integrate and understand each step of the, along the path. And, you know, it, they, it, there's something deeply personal about it that, that leaves me um, fascinated because it seems like it's like someone is is creating these events particularly specifically for me and I'm and I'm including in that a, a great deal of synchronicities it's like someone hiding behind the curtains all the time uh, doing doing everything manipulating everything and and uh, you know I, I noticed this with my own life uh, I've always suspected this in my own life but never had any real reason to, to conclude it until I became an investigator of the paranormal and then things started happening very quickly. Uh, the first four years I was doing this, um, I started having all kinds of uh, events happening, uh, outdoor sightings, indoor events at night. And I was in the middle of a book being written, it felt like. I was thinking, well, what's going to happen next? And I'm certain something is. And I was right in the middle of an un ongoing uh, unfolding of events, and I didn't know where it was taking me, but it was taking me somewhere and that somebody was in charge. Somebody was making it happen. And so I just went along with it until I just couldn't any, any longer. I just mentally asked them to please put a halt to the, these events. Uh, it was just getting to be a little overwhelming. And uh, they obliged to whoever it is. They obliged, and I didn't have any more uh, events that uh, you know caused me any concern or worry. And I was satisfied. And Every once in a while, I'll ask for a UFO sighting, and I'll get one. Uh, it, it's usually not very dramatic, but I will get one. They basically let me know they're still out there, and uh, it happens. And I try to be respectful of whoever they are. I feel like subconsciously, they know me, and I know them. But consciously, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just trying to piece it all together. But, but it's as if my subconscious is carrying a lot of secrets around that I don't know about. And perhaps hypnosis might pull some of that out. I don't know. But um, so far, I haven't gone that route. But I often wonder, what does my subconscious know that my conscious mind does not know? And what is your take on hypnosis um, uh, as far as its, its, its use as a tool in the investigation? I know it's a lot of people have very, very strong opinions on it. You know, um, And I would just curious what your thoughts are. <clears throat> Well, I feel that it's a, a very useful tool to have. Um, you can't rely on it 100%, but um, sometimes it will pull information out for you to connect with other information. And uh, there are times when it's very useful. It's it's um, When you're digging into the human mind, it's... Uh, it's, it's very fragile and things can go in any direction and it's hard to know what's real and what's not because you're dealing in recall and sometimes we recall things inaccurately but all hypnosis really seems to be is um, your ability to stop all the daily noise that's coming into your five senses all the time uh, most of what our five senses sense all the time is really noise and clutter. We only focus on the most important matters, but uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of information coming in all the time. 
But if you can weed out that information, block it all off, and focus strictly on one thing, um, you basically just stop all the noise, and you focus on one thing, and then your subconscious tends to open up, and you can see what's in there to some degree. Uh, but there seems to be a very thick barrier between the subconscious and the conscious mind. I don't know how it works, but uh, uh, boy, I, I constantly feel like I have a lot of information in my subconscious. I'm, I'm getting slowly more and more uh, interested in trying to tap into that and find out just what's in there. The only drawback is once you do unleash anything out of your subconscious, you're stuck with it. <laughs> so you, you may or may not want the memories. It depends on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, you, the, once the toothpaste comes out of the tube, it's not going back in. Yeah, you know? that's, a, that's a good analogy. Yeah. So the, um, it's interesting because you have, you sent me a, a, like a timeline of some a personal history. And uh, it's it's this is pretty dense, and this is all this is this is really fascinating, because um, people who research or excuse me, let's say people who try to debunk the the process will say it's all sleep paralysis, and it's all um, based on um, you know hypnosis. A neurological being, problem. Yeah, or neuro or hypnosis being used incorrectly and being led by a researcher. So so you yeah. uh, share very few stories that could be called um, bedside or nighttime visitations. Um, right, and at the same time you have had no hypnosis, and then at the same time there's a very rich uh, set of experiences here that that point to something going on, and and I sort of consider myself, you know, sharing the, a, a similar timeline in the sense that you know I've have attempted hypnosis a few times, no one's been able to put me under, and I and I quite honestly have been so incredibly nervous during the act of trying to be put under because I'm sort of scared what yeah. might be behind the curtain. What, you know, once you, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, so I have not been a very good yeah. patient because I've been so scared of it. Um, very little has come up. The one time that, that I did have yeah. what I feel like was a successful, uh, hypnosis experience was with Bud Hopkins and it involved, um, just a little more clarity of some events. Um, and, uh, you know, it was almost like the peripheral stuff around the event was very clear. The actual event itself, I got nothing new at all from. So. Uh, I think uh, one alternative uh, might be to go under hypnosis just to recall some memories of something totally unrelated that doesn't scare you. And then once you get used to going under, maybe one day you can then evolve to where you can tackle the, uh, the more challenging areas. That that seems like a logical way to go down that road. Right now, where I'm at, it seems like I don't have a... You know, at the time, that was going back a few years ago, and I went through a very challenging, uh, mixed-up, needy, and, I, and that was the only way... That's a good vocabulary word. I just felt so needy to have some answers, and they just weren't coming. Right. I was looking for anything. I was... Actually, at that point in my life, I was doing some work with uh, psychics. I was, you know, basically hiring psychics to do a session with me, and the information that came out of that was very interesting. I, I, I don't put 100% faith in it, but it did uh, point in directions <clears throat> that, uh, that, that I found were, were fruitful. Let me put it that way. Well, once we wake up to what's going on in our lives, uh, we start off on wobbly legs, and you don't really know for sure which way to go. It really takes a lot of effort to figure out uh, where you need to be traveling uh, in all this and, and who you need to be listening to and what you need to be doing. And I think a lot of times 
whoever they are, they they put compulsions in your head to guide you in certain directions you need to go. And um, uh, it's quite possible that where you are right now is this direct result of being guided. If you if you've uh, listened to your compulsions, chances are you're on the right path. And that's about all you can really do as a human being. We're just so limited. We've got we've only got five senses and uh, uh, a little feeble brain and a fragile nervous system, and that can be subjected to overload if we're not careful. And they know that. And uh, we're also in a world full of deception of all kinds. And uh, it's amazing that we accomplish what we do. I guess uh, perhaps these beings out there are impressed with our accomplishments. You never know. They they may feel like uh, they may see the potential in the human race uh, that we ourselves don't realize, and uh, maybe they work with us in the way that they do because they want to bring us along farther than where we would bring ourselves. And perhaps there are opposing factions out there working for us and against us at different times. Um, you know, some people have some really difficult. Uh, memories of alien abductions, for example. Uh, some people have committed suicide because they can't cope with this. You know, they never know when it's going to happen next. And uh, in some cases, their memories are not erased of what's happening. And and they're totally vulnerable and have nowhere to go. No, uh, no way to hide from it all. And uh, there could be, you know, malevolent factions out there as well as benevolent factions. And uh, just like in the human race, you know, um, when people ask me, well, aren't you scared of all this? I'll say, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what my record shows. 99.999% of all my problems have come from human beings. I feel like that I should be scared of human beings more than any paranormal beings. Because so far, paranormal beings have not done anything to me that... Uh, I can tell, but I've sure had a lot of problems with human beings. <laughs> so that's sort of the way I look at it. Yeah, and, and um, the way I try to look at it is that uh, on one level, it's a mystery. I've been confronted with a mystery, a very real set of experiences that, that I can't make sense of. And that mystery is, on one level, it's seductive, right? So it's very interesting right. going down the, yeah. the avenue of like, ooh, let's 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 look into this. So it, it does have a, I mean, to be quite honest, it's kind of exciting and it's kind of engaging and it's very fun on some levels to go down this yeah. avenue. At the same time, you know, being confronted with this mystery, I feel like oh. I don't have a choice, but... <clears throat> But, but to go down these avenues and try to make sense and try to rationalize. And I will say straight up, and I've said this over and over again, these audio interviews I'm doing are not for me to give information to the world. It is straight therapy for me. This is this is my own set of therapy. This is me trying to make sense of, of my own personal experiences. Um if and I and I recognize that people enjoy them and get some benefits out of them, which is great, but man, they are they are for me alone in a way, uh as I as I go down this path. Oh, I I can understand that. And I would imagine it's probably true with most researchers, really. Uh I think it is with me. I, I'm probably doing this more for myself than I am anything else. Uh, but at the same time, I, I'm focused more on uh, sharing the information uh, with other people. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of their well-being, but at the same time, I'm probably trying to take care of myself primarily, and uh, and that's where the the compulsion comes from and the passion. 
but it's a good thing because you produce a good product for others. And uh, regardless of what your motives, your inner motives might be, it's a good work because uh, people like you and, and other researchers are getting out there and sharing with the human race something that they would never get anywhere else. And uh, many of us, we have to go through uh, some real challenges to do it. And um, it's not an easy path to take. Uh, there have been some uh, there have been some moments I could just about jumped out of my socks if somebody had tapped me on the back. And uh, then there are other times when I, I boldly went into areas uh, without any concern. Uh, but there are many many challenges as you go. You can't. Uh, it, it's not an easy road. You have to be willing to do a lot of things that most people are not willing to do. It's as simple as going into a haunted building at night. You know, how many people are willing to do that? <laughs> well, once you start understanding things, you know, and you have a compassion for it, you'll find yourself in there, you know, studying things and trying to learn something. Uh, <clears throat> people generally are so caught up in their local worlds. Uh, most people do not have this cosmic sense of awareness. Uh, they have a, well, some people live totally within their own subculture. Uh, there's a pop culture in this country that some people live totally within, and they could not imagine a universe outside that pop culture, which is mostly commercialism and things of that nature and self-gratification and entertainment and living for the moment, in the moment. And uh, you could not picture these people ever wanting to sit on top of a mountaintop at night looking at the stars and meditating. You just couldn't picture these people ever wanting to do that. They don't value things like that. And they live in the moment, and their minds are very shallow. They have very little depth. And that's not what the human condition is meant for. Uh, I don't think human beings are cut out to be that way. I think that's living a very artificial way. But many people live that way. Uh, it just tends to be that way in civilization, I guess. Hey, here's a question. Um, how do you, would you rate your own psychic skills? Do you feel you have any psychic abilities or psychic experiences? Uh, near zero. And I, I think it might be that I might have some psychic potential, but I feel like I'm so disconnected from it. Um, I can say that uh, I did have one premonition that turned out to be true. Uh, that was rather prominent uh, several years ago. And um, it, it wasn't anything dramatic necessarily, but it was sort of dramatic for one person's personal life. And uh, I just uh, suddenly got an impulse one day. And uh, the, uh, the young lady that was traveling with me in my car when uh, the owl experience occurred, uh, she was getting ready to go to college a few years later, and uh, we were going out. I used to take her out every weekend to go to the shopping malls and things. We were very close, and uh, she was the daughter of a good friend of mine I grew up with, and uh, she just loved hanging out with me all the time, and so we spent a lot of time together. And uh, One day we were shopping, and uh, we came out to the car and opened the car door for her, and as she started to get in, uh, it just suddenly hit me. I said, you're going to have a boyfriend and she was getting ready to go to college, which, you know, you'd think, well, it's possible she might find somebody at school, uh, being that she's going to a new environment. And she had not had a boyfriend before, and she was close to 18 years old at the time. And, uh, but, uh, and, she, uh, and I said, this is significant. This feels very significant for some reason. 
And I had this, well, she asked me, uh, well, when, when will this happen? And um, I said, I don't know, but I feel like it'll be within a few months from now all the way out to maybe about seven or eight months from now. And, and for some reason, I had this perception of a time frame. And I couldn't tell her much more, but she said, well, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll meet somebody because I'm going to college anyway. And I said, no. I said, this is going to be something significant, not just simply meeting a guy and dating and that sort of thing. And it turned about, uh, let's say this was August. In November, uh, she was uh, on stage during some kind of event at college, and uh, the, everybody was wearing costumes. And she uh, she went crossing the stage, and there was this one young man out in the audience that's, that was with a few of his friends. And he saw her, and he just his, just, his jaw just dropped. And then for weeks, he was thinking about contacting her, maybe on instant messaging, and, and kept delaying it. And his friends kept saying, well, go ahead. And finally he did. He asked her out, and she said, sure. And uh, uh, they uh, immediately clicked, and they both finished out college the same year, and they both got married immediately afterward. He's a med student. She graduated with honors. He graduated with slightly higher honors, and they're now living together in West Virginia, and uh, I check on them every once in a while, and they're, they're living happily ever after. Uh, he's going to med school, and uh, she's uh, uh, working in her degree, and uh, everything's going great, and that was a significant event for her. And I'd never gotten such a profound premonition like that before, but I was certain about it, and the time frame uh, is quite telling. Uh, but it all just unfolded uh, just the way, for some reason, I knew it was going to. It was just an impression kind of feeling, but it was strong. And I don't get these. Uh, it was unusual for me. But I was very close to her. Uh, and I guess uh, sort of like a daughter. And uh, I guess that's why I did get the premonition. It was because it was with someone that I felt very close to psychologically. But that's the only that's the only experience I've ever had I can say was possibly psychic. But uh, I, I think there are people out there who are actually psychic. I think most people that claim they are are not. I do think that sometimes uh, many people can be psychic on occasions, and then other times when they think they're being psychic, they happen to get it wrong and misinterpret it. But I think uh, I think it's quite possible human beings can be psychic to some degree. Uh, it certainly felt like my premonition was correct. Now, this is interesting. This is just the question I asked about being, uh, you know, any psychic skills or psychic experiences, which in essence you said yes to, which is which is interesting, um, uh, is a question I ask of everyone who claims the, the this sort of UFO contact experience or abduction experience or however you want to, the interaction with the phenomenon, let's say. And it seems to be, you know, I want to say almost right around 100%. You're one of the few people who said, you know, like, no, no, nothing. Um, and that, that is something that I find really interesting because I've had a few psychic flashes that I can't control them. I don't know anything about them. I don't know when they're going to happen, but they've been equally profound, similar to the story they, you just shared. Do they seem to come from external sources? Hard for me to know. Some of them feel like that maybe and what it feels like to me is that um you know there's a there's a kind of a normal way we go about our thought process right you know you think about one thing and that thought leads to another and you think about that and all of a sudden you're on to a next thought um these psychic flashes come out of nowhere 
they are completely fully formed thoughts that just kind of go boom and just appear in my in my mindset yeah now sometimes uh, i'll get a thought that's fully formed to just pop into my head in a flash and i'm thinking i didn't even have to build that thought where did it come from and i wonder sometimes are all our thoughts our own i i have wondered <laughs> the same thing then when you get into the dream realm um, I've, I've had more experiences there where it felt like some of my dreams were orchestrated in a way to give me, uh, let's say, information or, let's say, reassuring information that is somehow intertwined with this phenomenon. You know, that just gave me a, a, a thought. Uh, dreams seem to be where the conscious mind meets the subconscious mind. Yeah, very much so. And dreams also seem to almost take place in a way where, you know, not even subconscious, but almost like the astral realm, like some other realm can be interacting with your dreams. And, you know, people will get premonitions in dreams. And oftentimes people will like have very profound meetings with, let's say, their dead grandparents or something in a dream that yes. plays out um, that will that will lead mm. to, you know, a clue of some sort in a paranormal way. And I've had dreams like that, uh, not so much with afterlife experiences like that, but more with things that seem to to uh, give me a direction to go down in, in this UFO lore. Well, I, I believe after 12 years of studying all this and experiencing what I have uh, and talking to other researchers and getting their stories, it's, I believe there's more to our subconscious side than their, our conscious side. And I, I feel like the paranormal connects to our subconscious uh, not so much our conscious. It seems like the conscious mind is not designed to directly connect to the paranormal realm. And it seems like there's some kind of interplay there going on, uh, attempted connectivity, I guess. But I get the impression that maybe we're primarily subconscious creatures and and we're thinking that we're just the opposite. We're thinking that we're conscious creatures when, in fact, there could be more going on in our lives while here on Earth uh, on the subconscious level, it seems like the uh, these alien beings uh, seem to deal with this more on the subconscious level than they do the conscious level for some reason. There's a, a an abductee, and I've read so many books over the last decade or so that that I that it's hard for me to pinpoint this where I read it and who said it. But uh, an abductee or a contactee said. Um, she was trying to describe the difference in the experience and she said you know we you know when you go to a movie theater and the movie screen is flat you know it's there's an illusion that it's 3d but it's really flat and and that's where we live we live in this somehow flat world and when you step into their world or interact with them it's richer and more three-dimensional and 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 far more expansive than the confines of that movie screen that we live on and I thought that metaphor it was really interesting to me because it painted a picture of just what you're saying, that this, this, there's an other, another side of us that can interact with, with them, and, it, and it's, it, it can't really take place in our logical, conscious world. Yes, I've often wondered, uh, you know, we have five senses as human beings, and that's how we view our entire world is through these five windows. And what would life be like for us if we had ten senses? And what would they be? And what could we see? What would, could we detect that we can't detect with our five senses right now? I don't believe our five senses show us everything there is, yet members of the science community tend to like to think that they do. Everything can be 
understood within those five senses. I just don't see that. I really don't see that. But uh, what if we had more senses than just five senses? What would we be seeing constantly that we can't see right now? I just think that the universe goes a lot farther out there than just our five senses. And there's no reason to think otherwise, really. Well, um, Whitley Strieber wrote recently about um, you know the potential for disclosure, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said. He said um, you know that that don't expect the visitors to land on the White House lawn. You know their arrival won't be through a landing like that. What will happen, he postulates, is that it will like be a, a wall that gets removed, separating, you know, our realities are separate right now, and those realities will merge and become one, is how he postulates it. So I don't know quite what that means, but I, but it seems that, do we just wake up one morning and we have those extra senses? Whether those senses are the ability to see into time and differently than we can see now? Well, I think that what he's saying there is that it's going to happen in a non-dramatic way instead of a dramatic way. Um, I don't think it would be good for anybody if it happened in a dramatic way either because it would just cause all kinds of upset. And the, uh, the entire human race has a, has a framework that we live within uh, right now, our infrastructure and everything else, and it's all called status quo. And you just can't go and upset that status quo on a large scale without causing all kinds of chaos on a worldwide scale. And uh, I think these beings realize that. They realize this is a very fragile world that we human beings have created for ourselves. And it doesn't take much to foul it all up. And that may be the very reason they're so non-interfering all the time. They, they don't just come straight out and do something obvious with us. They do it in small increments and in subtle ways. Uh, it could very well be because maybe they've tried this with uh, other races on other planets and realized from trial and error that there's things you do and there's things you don't do. And uh, I think the human race is in a very delicate balance and really more so now than ever. Uh, right now, I think it's safe to say that we're going through a population explosion, an overpopulation explosion. And... Most people are not even talking about that because it's not a popular concept right now. But I think uh, probably over half of our problems that we have right now are due to overpopulation. And uh, I think that's going to be a more significant problem in time, and eventually we'll start realizing it more and more. But I think an outside observer would look and say, uh, yeah, this situation is getting much more intense now because there's a lot more human beings on the Earth than there were 100 or 200 years ago, and uh, there's no end in sight to the overpopulating. And um, if you uh, if you recall back in the 60s, I believe it was, uh, there were psychologists doing uh, all kinds of lab experiments, uh, uh, like on rats and mice and things. And uh, uh, in one case, they put a bunch of mice together in a confined area. And just wanted to monitor their behavior over a period of time and see how how they would react after being in a confined environment with each other, uh, say for a couple of weeks or so. And uh, after uh, toward the end of the experiment, uh, those mice were uh, biting and sniffing at each other. They were highly aggressive. Uh, they were very irritable, and uh, a whole host of other negative traits. And uh, they weren't acting in their normal nature at all. But um, 
it makes me wonder, uh, isn't there a correlation? Uh, when you look at how many human beings we have now, doesn't it seem like the stress level is rising and rising and rising? And we're even uh, possibly reaching up the beginnings of insanity. I think it's, it's, it's certainly a justifiable debate to wonder if the human race is starting to go insane. Collectively, you, yeah, collectively. I just yeah, collectively. The grand yeah. decision-making process that, that that is taking place at the highest levels um, just seems, you know, I mean, like it seems like a kindergarten student would, would make better decisions uh, than what gets made at, at the highest levels. Uh, you know, exactly. And um, there's also, and I think if I'm remembering this correctly, I just read recently that the uh, the population of the planet is expected to tip into the 7 billion number as of tomorrow, the way it's estimated, tomorrow being Halloween, uh, 2011. Right. Uh, roughly, it's estimated uh, it's occurring right now. So, uh, yeah, that is true. I heard that also. And, uh, you know, we uh, it wasn't long ago we just hit 6 billion. It wasn't long ago at all. I, I was shocked at how recent it was we'd hit the 6 billion mark, and now we hit the 7 billion mark. Um, it's getting kind of crazy, <laughs> it seems. Yeah, and and who knows? I mean, just the tiniest little, uh, you know, tipping point. You know, like one drought. You know, in one part of the planet could have profoundly catastrophic reverberations around the globe. Yeah, or a meteor hitting in the middle of the ocean. You yeah, know? Or, yeah, or exactly. <clears throat> yeah. I yeah, mean, no, we're we're making ourselves more vulnerable. That's for sure. Uh, but more to each other than anything else. Uh, uh, you know, nature has a way of clearing things out. Uh, I, I tend to look at the planet Earth as going through a human infestation right now. <laughs> and uh, I hate to use that word, but perhaps that's what it really is. And uh, eventually what happens with an infestation is that the infestation eventually destroys its host and it destroys itself eventually. And I'm wondering if maybe outside observers are looking at us and wondering if that's not the path we're going to end up going. Yeah, I mean, this sort of speculation, you know, going down this road, you know, who knows what the future will bring. Um, I do sense, and, and I have no way of knowing this, that, that we are setting ourselves up for some very challenging times in the, in the, in the short-term future. Yeah, all the evidence uh, clearly indicates that. Uh, you'd have to be ignorant to think otherwise, for yeah. sure. Hey, we've been going at it for exactly two hours now. Um, how are you doing? Oh, wow. Oh, great, great. Uh, time is really flying. Uh, I, I guess I'm uh, enjoying my passion good, <laughs> right good. now. Yeah, this has been great. I've been absolutely delighted. All the information has been wonderful. So here's a question to you as we wind this down. Is anything you want to share or to, to help sum this up? Well, I guess there are probably many things I could share as a final note, but uh, I say a lot of it in my website, uh, but I, I, people are going to have to deal with the paranormal. It's not going away. It's here, and people can go ahead and live in ignorance, or they can live in knowledge. Uh, and for each individual, it's hard to say what's best for them. Um, uh, you, you've interviewed Dolores Cannon before, I believe. You've talked to her before, if I've I remember I've spoken with her directly, but I've never interviewed yeah. her. Okay, well, I've, uh, I've met her also and talked to her before. And uh, in one of her books, uh, she has uh, channeled a lot of information through her hypnotic subjects from uh, higher beings out there, some kind of paranormal beings. And when you look at the incredible amount of knowledge uh, going into her books, it, it's hard to uh, dismiss it. Uh, and it's not 
I don't think it's anything uh, any one or two people could ever come up with. It's so much information. But one thing uh, that stands out in my mind from reading some of her books is that uh, one alien being was talking to this abductee or contactee uh, while on board a craft, and and the uh, the female uh, was asking the alien being, why can't you just come forward and be obvious and show everybody who you are? And the the alien being said, uh, well, a lot of people just are not going to accept it. But uh, he said that knowledge can be like medicine or it can be like poison. And I got to thinking about that, and that is so true. For some people, they, it's enlightening to find out that there is an outer world out there. But for many people who live totally within their programming and perhaps within their own cultures, uh, it might not be uh, easy at all for them to handle such a thing. So I guess the ultimate solution is for it to be a gradual awakening for everybody. That's the least painful way for it to all happen. But um, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing in the long run. It could be a mixed bag. Uh, people say, well, well, what's an alien like? Well, what are, what's a human being like? You know, there's various answers to that question. But uh, I think we all have to just tiptoe through and cautiously and carefully uh, pursue this and see what we can find out and work together and, and really cling tightly to the truth and see where it takes us. But uh, this is a journey where we just have no idea where the end is. But perhaps in the final analysis for us, maybe it's all about the journey, not about where it takes us. Yeah, very much so. And that's actually been sort of the, the flavor of my own uh, you know, personal writings and, and what I've been, you know, the path I've been going down. I couldn't agree more. Hey, this has been great. Oh, I've enjoyed it. I, I'm, I'm really uh, thankful that uh, we got together and perhaps it's the result of synchronicity. I don't know. But um, uh, I have met the most wonderful people in this business, and I can never say that enough. I, my life has just been so... Uh, fascinating uh, because of, mainly because of the people that I've met and gotten to know and I've made some good friends in this business and uh, and we're all trying to figure this thing out together and um, some of these people are just fascinating people uh, I've found that m many if not most of the researchers and experiencers are not just normal everyday people there's some kind of quality they have that sets them above the average Joe and uh, I don't know what it is exactly, but I've met some really fascinating people, and I wouldn't take anything for the experience. I really wouldn't. I, I, I'm, I'm thankful that I've been able to go down this road for the past 12 years that I've been taking, and I look forward to see where uh, the future years take us. It'll be an interesting ride, no doubt. It certainly will. Hey, well, thanks so much, and, and um, uh, this will be posted in a few days, and, uh, and uh, I think this has been a great interview. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate you and appreciate what you're doing. I, the, the interviews that you've done in the past are just really wonderful. Uh, they're full of good information uh, with some really wonderful people. And I'm, I'm so honored that you put me on your list of interviews. 
It really means a lot to me. Thank you very much. Good. Oh, and, and that means a lot to me too. And, I, and as I go down this and, and sort of pursue this, the folks that I'm interviewing, um, you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about interviewing the, the, you know, the people with a lot of books and such and more concerned with interviewing people who are on their own journey and as well as something sort of heartfelt within, their, within what they have to share. There's a lot of potential out in our society waiting to be tapped. Yeah. Wonderful, great, and I and and I will the, all the show notes that that are accompanying this discussion will um, I'll make sure to reference the pages on your website, you know, that match the uh, what we talked about here in the content of the of the conversation. Oh, that'd be great. I appreciate that, and thank you, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this, and uh, uh, these are highlights in in my time doing this. So uh, these are good moments to have, and I really appreciate it. I'll, uh, I'll be keeping in touch with you, and uh, I'll have some things to send you on occasion, too, that I think you'll appreciate. It might help you along. Thank you so much, so, and I'll, I'll do the same. All right, you take care. Thanks. All right, bye. And this is Mike chiming in at the end here. Just a little summation. I just want to make sure that anyone who listened to this entire interview knows that pretty much each of the reports that Alan talked about are posted on the show notes. Um, that includes the deer and the owl incident, and that was the incident that first brought me to Alan, as well as the scoop mark in the shirt story and uh, and a few others. Those are, those are all available um, just with hyperlinks on the blog page featuring Alan's interview. Uh, I, I just got to say I was delighted by this interview, and, and I was impressed with the thoughtful dedication that Alan has towards his research. And, uh, you know, once again, there's a blending of his own research and then uh, his own personal journey, trying to make sense of his own set of experiences. Um, to me, this is fascinating. Uh, if you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. I can settle down and be doing just fine Till I hear an old freight rolling down the line Then I hear a straight home and pack And if I did I believe I'd blow my stack I love you, baby But you gotta understand When the Lord made me He made a rambling man Some folks might say that I'm no good That I wouldn't settle down if I could But when that open road Starts to call in me There's something over the hill That I got Sometimes it's hard, but you gotta understand when the Lord made me, 
He made a rambling man I love to see the towns A-passing by And to ride these rails Neath God's blue sky Let me travel this land From the mountains to the sea Cause that's the life I believe He meant for me And when I'm gone And at my grave you stand Just say God's called home 